Well, tonight we're doing another Zoom interview, this time with U Poon Tant, who is commonly known as Harry. And his story is a little different to all of the stories that uh, we've recorded before, as he was a long-time uh, employee of the Burma Socialist Program Party. So, Harry, I'd like to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, can we start perhaps with you talking a little bit about your family background? Okay, I will start now. Actually, I couldn't get back far enough except for my uh, grandparents because in uh, Myanmar culture, we do not record down the family tree. There's no such thing as a church record or anything like that. It's just passed out by mouth, word of mouth. So starting with my uh, paternal grandparents, my grandfather was a middle class, middle level government employee. He was first a magistrate at a small court in Rangoon during the British colonial period. And then he was transferred to uh, Rangoon Development Trust. Uh, in uh, short, it's called RDT. Actually, his duties were to develop the Rangoon uh, city and collect the necessary taxes and revenues for the government and granting of land leases. That's my paternal grandfather. He was also a member of a lodge. He, I think he was appointed as a worshipful master or something like that. I do not remember exactly. <laughs> but when I was very young, we had his, I played with his old clothes and his medals and all these. And then my paternal grandmother, she owned a lot of rice land, rice paddy land around this Ledbadan township in the Bako region. She was a typical Myanmar lady. Stay at home, look out the family, etc., etc. And then my maternal grandfather, that is the father of my mother, was the chief clerk at a Scottish firm operating in Yangon. The firm name was Alam and Arakan Rice and Trading Company. And he was in charge of the uh, textile trade, textile section, as the chief clerk, as the highest uh, Burmese can get at the time. Chief clerk at a foreign trading company. And then uh, my maternal grandmother, she used to have a charut factory. 
scheduled is something like a, a cigar, a Burmese-style cigar. And then she also owned a lot of paddy land across the Yangon River at a place called Chowta. Then my father, my dad walked together with my grandfather, with his, with, together with his father, my grandfather. He was a, in, in the Burmese language, we call it a Konwin. A Konwin means a, a venue officer. He was in charge of collecting land revenue and taxes. West for Western Range Yanko. And then my mother, she's just a typical housewife. Just look on to the family. Well, that's about my grandparents and my uh, parents. Wasn't there something that happened in 1951 with the UNU government in terms of land? Well, during the UNU government in 1951, all privately owned paddy land were nationalized, expropriated, and redistributed among the uh, patients. So we lost all our paddy land. And was that a surprise, do you think, or did people predict that that was going to happen? That would happen, that would happen, because at that time, the what you call uh, the peasants who walked the land are very poor and they were poked down in loans. So when the uh, parliamentary government of UNU came into power, it was expected that we would do something for the peasantry. Okay, okay. So now about your um your childhood then? Yeah, I started school at uh, Lady Borton's Children's Play School. Lady Borton was a wife, a European wife of Sir Borton, who was once a premier under the British, during the British former period, British imperial colonialism. colonialism. She was a prime minister. And his uh, wife, Lady Botron, opened this kind of a kindergarten for the young students. It was situated on Halpin Road, now called Kidangzu Was it started... difficult? Was it difficult to go there? Was it only for you know elite Burmese? Well, is, uh, well you might say it's a bit difficult. You need to have some kind of a connection to get into the school because it's kind of a what you call a elite school because all these children that attended the Bottom School will automatically be admitted to Methodist English High School, one of the best schools in Yangon at that time, together with St. Paul's. St. John's, the convent school for the, for the girls. So all these young students who studied the Lady Bottom School uh, were accepted into the 
Madras English High School. And Madras English High School was run by our Madras missionaries. The principal was a Scottish lady, and most of the teachers are either uh, with British ancestry or English speaking people. Is that so where you, you got are, the nickname Harry? Is that where you're given the name Harry? Yeah, yeah. Because at that time, most of the uh, children who studied under the at these uh, missionary schools are uh, given uh, Christian names. So as I said, I joined the uh, Lady Borton's Children's Play School from kindergarten. But this school was only up to the first grade. So after the first grade, I transferred to Madras English High School. I joined the second grade until the 10th grade. And that is, we call it matriculation class. As you finish the secondary school and are ready to join the university. I was just a simple boy. I did not excel in anything academically or in sports. When I was in the uh, final year at the school, that's uh, matriculation classes, we had this system called uh, combination. You can either take the uh, science combination, that is physics, chemistry, and or the arts combination with uh, history, geography, you know. So what I took was history, geography, and double English. Double English means uh, normal English classes plus English literature. So I passed this uh, matriculation examination held by the government in 1962. That was a big and, year in Myanmar, wasn't it, 1962? Yeah, it, uh, it was actually during our examinations that the coup took effect, March 2nd, 1962. And we were at that time sitting for the 10th standard exams. So, as you know, all the universities and the schools were closed down, shut down by the government because of this uh, student unrest. And then they reopened. I started this uh, Intermediate of Arts Part A courses at the university, Yangon University. But then they were shut down again. I never took part in all this unrest. I was just a bookworm, never interested in any of this politics. So I had nothing to do when this university shut down or the classes closed down. And then I saw an advertisement in the newspapers that the Soviet Union is offering scholarships for eligible students to come study in the Soviet Union. And the advertisement was by the Ministry of Education, or Ministry of Education. So I applied, I sent in an application, set for the examinations, were selected, and they asked me what I want to study. Because, I'm, to be frank, I'm very weak in maths, mathematics. But I have a talent in uh, languages. 
and I like reading, I can study, I have a good memory. So I said anything will be fine except the science and engineering subjects. So I was sent to the uh, Moscow State University, Lomonosov Moscow State University. Uh, study political economy in 1963. And was that, were your parents supportive or what was the general yeah, view of the population, you know, of your friends? What did your friends think about? They were very proud that I have been selected at a government scholar sent overseas to study. They were very supportive. Everybody was very proud. The family was proud. The neighbors were also very proud. So you were, I think, how many years in, in uh, the Soviet Union? Five years. Five years. And surely for a person coming from Myanmar, the winters must have been horribly cold for you. Yeah, there were a lot of our friends no, though I think there were about 400 Burmese students at that time studying in the Soviet Union. Most of them were engineering and science and uh, medicine. But three or four of us were studying uh, Marxism, Leninism, because one scholar got a PhD in uh, philosophy in Marxism-Leninism. Three of my friends, they had a PhD in political economy. I was the only one who had a master's in political economy from the uh, Soviet Union. And did you get enough money? Did you did you have a pension or a, uh, you know, a scholarship funds to study? Yeah, we had a, we had a 100 uh, what do you call a one hundred dollars pension uh, dollars U.S. dollars equivalent Russian rubles? That is ninety Russian rubles equivalent to one hundred U.S. dollars. Was that uh, enough to live well, or just enough? Just enough. You, do, you don't have anything to spend on extra, but it's just enough. Except when there is a need to buy some warm clothing or shoes. Because warm clothing and shoes were very expensive at that time. So 90 kopecks is equivalent to $1. So we get 90 rubles a month. The uh, postgraduate students, they get 100 rubles a month. Were you able to buy warm clothing or did your parents have to send you money? Actually, uh, the agreement was that as soon as we arrived, were provided with warm clothing. A uh, shapka, that is a fur hat. Uh, a palto, palto is an overcoat, a warm overcoat, and fur lined uh, boots, and everything. Well, as soon as we arrived, we were taken to the uh, Universe Mark, that is a shopping center. Goom. We call it Goom. That is the biggest shopping center in Moscow. 
right across the uh, uh, the, the Red Square and the Kremlin. We were taken there, and we had to choose the clothes and the hats and the boots that fit such. But the problem with me is that uh, I was, I'm smaller, just five feet three inches, and uh, about 50 kilograms in weight. So I could not find anything in the adult section. <laughs> <laughs> so they took me to another place called Jetski Mir. Jetski Mir is uh, in English, it's called a children's world. So I had to go there and took the biggest size for children. <laughs> <laughs> so anyhow, that's uh, we are we were provided as soon as we arrived with warm clothing. But for the uh, later, we had to buy our own, of course. Right. And were the Russians or the Soviets friendly towards? you know, students from Asia or? Uh, what you call the ordinary people, very friendly, very hospitable, very fun loving. But the problem is you drink a lot. Were you able to go to people's homes or was that forbidden? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can go, to, we can visit my teachers, my professors, houses, homes. Yeah, no problem. West retreat that is uh, behind the iron curtain. People are living like prisoners. No, we were not like that. Right. Of course, we were what you call uh, have to obey all the laws. Like uh, if you cross the road, the militia man will stop you and instantly fine you. Or if you go home drunk, they will just take you on their little bicycle and take you to the uh, police station. Because if they leave you on the road, you will freeze to death. But the problem with me was that I do not drink at all. Well, I do not have any of that problem. But my problem was that I cannot, I have problems with going to the cinema. If I go and go to an adult rated cinema, they will shoo me away and said, this is for the adults. You go to see the comics and the cartoons. <laughs> <laughs> I get angry. I had to show them my passport that I am above 80. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was the only problem I had. So why did you return in 1968? Is that because you'd finished your master's? Finished my studies. Right. And during those five or six years that you were in the Soviet Union, you never returned home, right? You were just there the whole time? I returned once. I had to save some money and return once. I think after two, three years. Oh, you were able to return home for a, a period? Yeah. Well, I think about 30 days, I think, I stayed at home. Right. You have to struggle, of course. You of course. Spend much girls or drinks, but you have to. You have enough if you live. If you live frugally, because if you for a breakfast, you spend around about uh, 
what, 50 packs, 50 cents. Because for a slice of black uh, brown bread, actually it's black bread, totally, totally black. It's free at the student uh, cafeterias, you know? And if you take a chai, chai that is tea without milk or sugar, it's free. But if you take a sugar and milk with your tea, you pay, I think, three, three cents extra. And three cents extra for a slice of white bread. And then uh, for lunch, you spend about one ruble, 50 cents. And for dinner, around about $1.50. So, I mean, it's not fine dining, of course. You go and eat at the cafeteria, at a student cafeteria. So, and you had to, yeah. Harry, you had to learn Russian to do all your exams and yeah, everything? I, we first enrolled at the, what we call a preparatory course. It's kind of a foundation course for Russian language. We learned Russian for 10 months together with other students from other countries. My uh, classmates were from Nigeria, Mozambique, Kenya, Tunisia, you know, and uh, Indonesia, from all over this uh, world. Because at that time, most of the uh, countries in Asia and Africa and South America were newly liberated. I mean, they just got their independence and the Soviet Union was trying to organize these students into becoming coach uh, communists. <laughs> right. And Harry, what happened after you came back in 1968? Well, I was... Uh, given a job at its uh, central company headquarters of the Burma Socialist Program Party. All of us who came back from uh, the Soviet Union, they were immediately given jobs at the right. various ministries concerned. Right. And what was it like working there? Well, it's just like a job, any, any other place, you know. But I presume a lot of people weren't positively disposed to the Burma Socialist well, Program Party? Yeah. Well, people treated just as a job, you know. There were clerks, of course. There were typists. There were drivers, you know, at the uh, Central Comedy Headquarters in Yangon. And we also had this... Uh, Party units at township level. They also had drivers, typists, clerks. So it's a job for everybody. It's just a typical job. No brainwashing? No brainwashing. But of course, we had to join the uh, party first as uh, party sympathizers, the first stage, and then a probationary period. 
and then uh, full-fledged party members. And during those party uh, those years, we have to, of course, attend these various seminars and training sessions. That's normal. At that time, were was the was there public support for the program? Here, here. Uh, actually, our Burmese people were not that how do you call it, politically mature. So the people, as long as you have a good living, peaceful life, they will support. And did you get special benefits because you're a member of the party? No, no special benefits. No special benefits. Maybe if the VIPs would get, but for us, like ordinary people, we don't get any special. So what were some of the things that you did with the uh, Burma Socialist Program Party? Well, as I said in my uh, short notes, I was first inducted as a junior officer. Then I had to go to this uh, basic political course at the Central Institute of Politics under the uh, Central Committee. That's a compulsory course for all people uh, designated to become uh, senior officers or township level party unit members. And then later I was attached to so many commissions. I was first attached to the uh, 1974 Constitution Draft Commission as a research associate to the uh, subcommittee drafting the fundamental rights and duties of citizens, and then to the uh, subcommittee going, to, going around Southern Shan State to explain to the population about the salient points of the new socialist constitution in a group headed by the uh, general secretary of the party's headquarters. And then I was attached to the uh, election commission as a chief of staff of the secretary's office. And then to the referendum commission that is tasked to hold a referendum to for this uh, 1974 state constitution and I was I came back to the mother unit the constitution got passed and was there anything uh, special about it well this, it was uh, the constitution 1974 socialist constitution was uh, aim at establishing a socialist country. That is the main objective of the constitution. And what were some of the other things you did at the um, in the party? Yeah, as I said, I was a junior, uh, junior analyst at this uh, agricultural, animal husbandry, forestry and cooperative affairs committee. And then uh, a senior analyst with the science and uh, 
technical technological affairs subcommittee and then with the uh, international affairs committee and the last position i had was at this international affairs committee as chief of staff because in 1988 student riots or uprising the party was dissolved correct it was dissolved disbanded yeah and was that a shock well, of course it was a shock yeah one day you've got a job and the next day suddenly it's completely gone yeah actually we were warned that from this day on from such a such a day onwards except for the skeleton staff nobody um, should come to office anymore i think it was on august 22 1988 nobody sh should come to the office anymore we were warned do, do you know why was that because of the student demonstrations or yeah because the student demonstration and the ai then there was his coup any idiot it was the coup you know yeah because the coup there was a coup and the constitution was abolished and all political parties were disbanded by the military so the psdp was also disbanded so how how did that feel what you'd spent 20 years there 1968 to 1988 yeah and then just suddenly your job's gone yeah but i was at first i was of course injected in the press but i am a resilient guy i started other started doing other what you call uh, jobs started to find other jobs i started as a private tuition teacher was your wife working no she was not working she has a typical nomaga she has never worked all her life until now the centering people were very amazed when i told them that in our culture to have a husband who is able to provide everything for the wife is an honor yeah <laughs> the centering people were very amazed <laughs> right that's in australia but in 1988 after that from what i understand i mean it's not easy to make a living as a private tuition teacher is it no there were a lot of because the schools were closed down universities were closed there were a lot of young students who want to continue with their education like speaking classes english language classes a lot of work so were you able to earn more doing that than you earned from the government job well nearly well nearly right and so things started to open up a bit in myanmar mm. so what did you do then well in 1993 i started a travel agency together with my schoolmates school trippin uh, travels from the methodist boys high school from the methodist english high school Me methodist english high school 
yeah, together with my schoolmates. I think that's quite a network, isn't it? The old boys' network. Yeah, we had a No, our school had many distinguished, produced many distinguished personalities. You know, Aung San Suu Kyi was one of our alumni. Yep, I did. Yeah. And then uh, the first president under her government, Chin Chiu, was my classmate. Well, that's a good connection. Yeah, and many became um, big shots in the uh, government machinery. Many became, uh, some became ministers. One of my uh, Moscow alumni, he became a minister. And many of us became managing directors at government enterprises, director generals of government departments, yeah, rectors. So did the old, we call it, you know, the old school tie, did that network help people get jobs? It doesn't mean that they have jobs. You have to get a good, I mean, a, what do you call it, a gazetted officer job. Right. Gazetted officer rank. You have to sit for the, uh, what do you call it, public service commission examinations. So in addition to the travel agency, I think you got very involved in the government side of the travel industry. Is that right? Yeah, I... After the uh, this uh, 1993, I was running this uh, travel agency, and at the same time, I was collaborating with this Harrison Institute in conservation and everything. And in 2001, I was appointed by the Ministry of Culture and Tourism as a General Secretary of the. Uh, newly formed Union of Myanmar Travel Association as a general secretary. So that that association, I presume, uh, represented all of the travel agencies in Myanmar, is, is that correct? Yes, all the travel agencies and travel-related. Oh, like hotels, hotels and hotels. guest houses? Later, they, what you call it, they had their own associations. Oh, the hotels did? The hotels and the uh, hotel, uh, what do you call it, hotel professionals and transport professionals. They had their own associations later. Tourism was becoming a big thing by 2001. But uh, in 19, it was becoming a big thing but in 1996, we had this uh, Burma visit Myanmar to promote the country. But sadly, the opposition at the time, the National League for Democracy, was calling for a boycott of tourism. So we had to struggle very hard. So one of the other things that I found very interesting that you did was rediscovering the ancient traditional cooperative yeah. fishing. Uh, actually, in 1990, uh, 2001, I was also appointed as a 
publisher, chief editor, and a, what you call the principal writer of this travel magazine, Enchanting Myanmar, on behalf of the Ministry of Culture and Tourism. And during my travels over the country, I was once in uh, Mandalay. And then I saw some people running into the river at Mandalay Jetty. I asked them, what is so interesting in the river? They said there are a couple of dolphins uh, coming up the river. I was very surprised. I've never heard of uh, dolphins in the freshwater areas. I know about dolphins in the ocean and seas and the salt water areas, but never in the freshwater areas. So I asked around and they said there are some villages north of Mendeley where the fishermen and the dolphins, they are called Iravdi dolphins, uh, Ocasella viverosus, that's a scientific name, Ocasella viverosus. So they told me that there are some fishermen up north of Mendeley that fish together the dolphins, a cooperative, collaborative fishing method that been passed on for generations. So I came back to Yangon, and coincidentally, I read about uh, this professor from Patna University who got a grant from the Whale and Dolphin Conservation Society in UK, who got a grant to study these Ganges or dolphins. So I cut out this report and sent it to one of my friends in uh, UK to find out about this Whale and Dolphin Conservation Society and tell them that we also have this uh, freshwater dolphins in the Irrawaddy River, and that they have this unique method of cooperative fishing with the dolphins and the fishermen. So to cut the story short, the Wildland Dolphin Conservation Society came back to me and said, they sent a scientist to study this uh, Dolphins and to look on this, look into this uh, cooperative fishing. No, the interesting thing about this cooperative fishing is that it's been handed down from generations to gener generations. These dolphins were in the Irawadi River a long, long time ago. In the Chinese chronicles of the Tang Dynasty, about 2,000, 3,000 years ago, I discovered a writing, a small piece, that they mentioned that there are river pigs in Nianqian, that's Burma, in Nianqian. Nianqian is the Chinese name for Burma. 
And because the dolphins have three layers, the topmost layer, the fat, and the muscles, maybe they like to call it like pigs. <laughs> they call it uh, river, dolph- uh, river pigs. So I got this information also, browsing through all these uh, encyclopedias and everything. So I went up to these uh, villages, interviewed some fishermen. So what they said was that they go out in the small canoes and they have these uh, little wooden mallets and hammers. They tap on the uh, side of the canoes and the dolphins would come up. And the dolphins would what called, uh, look for this fish round them up together, tell the fishermen with their tails how to approach the fish. Like if they point to the uh, right with the with the fins, the fishermen will follow uh, to turn towards the right. Or if this, uh, the fins show to the left, they'll go left. And if the fins are flat on the water, he just cast the net. And he said that with the help of the dolphin, he can get a lot of catch, a big catch. But without the uh, help of the dolphins, he have only a small catch. So I was very fascinated. And together with Brian, we went about all these uh, villages, talked to the fishermen, to did some outreach programs, outreach programs, and uh, distributed some, what you call, uh, posters on the conservation of these dolphins. Did, uh, did a seminar in Yangon on these dolphins. So, do they give and, the do they give some of the catch to the dolphins? Is that the? Yeah, what the dolphins get in return was that. Uh, they get this, uh, what do you call a spillover, spillover from the catch. They get this fish from the spillover. So I can give you a three or four part story I did with, uh, with the dolphins, uh, interpretive, I mean, it's collaborative dolphins. I have written a story three or four parts, I think, about a particular dolphin and the connection with the, with the fisherman, how they help the fishermen catch the fish. Yeah, I'd be uh, interested if you could send me a copy. Yeah, I can send you. It's about four or five parts, I think, together with, uh, with photos. So, Harry, I'd like you, if you wouldn't mind, to talk a little bit, you've written quite a lot of on the history of uh, Rangoon. Perhaps you could talk about race course, what happened and some of the stories that flowed from that. Because we were under the British, the British custom of going to the races caught hold in the country also. All the uh, high society, it was a prestige to become a member of the tough club, as in England. 
but uh, to be accepted as a member of this uh, tough club, as I said, is a very prestigious occasion. There is also a member stand around the race course, race track, but the ordinary people that stand in the uh, sun on the other side of the uh, grandstand. My uncle, that is the younger brother of my mother, he likes horses uh, very much. And my hairdresser also. What I remember is that the race courses were mostly held on Sundays. And by Monday and by Friday, these uh, handicaps and all this, how much weight for this uh, particular horse, all these details come out. And they will sit around and calculate, you know, which horse to bet. And you can never go and disturb them. They get very angry. If you go and disturb them while they are calculating all these handicaps and bets and all these things. And on Sunday, there are all these uh, buses. At the time, when I was young, the buses do not have uh, bus lines, I mean. Bus, bus suits do not have uh, numbers on them. They were emblems. All these bus routes going to these race course, they had these uh, emblems of a red horse, white horse, and a zebra. All these uh, bus routes, their destination is uh, going to this uh, race course, tough club. So every Sunday, all these buses are jammed, the people are going to this uh, race, races, the only people I mean. So my uh, uncle and this hairdresser, of course, they also do. In the evening, they would come back. You go and ask them, so how much did you win? They get angry. I never heard them win anything at all. <laughs> <laughs> I never heard them win anything, anytime. And I do not know. They never got rich from betting on horses. As far as I know, they never they never got, got rich or got any win. Anyhow, after 1962, well, doctor, according to the rumors, I mean, I do not know exactly personally, but according to the rumors, Unewen was very fond of races, and he would also go to the races regularly. Even my family doctor, he was an Indian gentleman, Dr. Tom Lamack, he has a stable for his horses. There's a paddock near the near the tough club. And he bred his horses. And to be a owner of a stable is also a very, what you call a prestigious position in society. So to cut the story short, Unewin finally shut down all these uh, races 
was reading and said, this is making people poor. There were also rumors, of course. I do not know personally, just people whispering that he would go to England and to Europe and bet on horses. I don't know exactly, just rumors. <laughs> So do people, when Nawin made a decision like that, everyone just accepts it and no one says anything? Well, everybody understands that this racist is no, this racist are no good. They make people poor. Everybody knows that, except for this logically high society, the elites and the rich, the ordinary people. It makes them poor. Everybody knows that, accepts that. So you're saying that when he uh, banned horse racing, the majority of people accepted that was a good decision? That was a good decision. I personally think it's a good decision. And what happened to the race course? Because it's a big area. Uh, before I go to that, I would like to tell you more about this uh, orphan conservation. Okay. What I'm doing now, I told you, I have started a project called a tourism project at a small village on the banks of the Irrawaddy, a little bit north of Mendeley, together with the funding from Harrison Institute of UK. Did you say so Harrison? 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 Harrison Institute, based in UK. Right. So what we are doing with this uh, conservation is that we have set up this uh, community-based tourism project in this village. The villagers, the fishermen in that village has a long story of fishing together with the dolphins. So we are promoting this traditional fishing method as a tourist uh, attraction and part of the revenue is earmarked for conservation, part for the uh, village development, and part for the, uh, what you call the upkeep of the project, of course, for the expenses of the project. So this project was started in 2014, and we finished that in 2018. And it was going very well. It was going very well. Even got a award. I think it was two awards, one, uh, three awards. One from the ministry and the uh, Asian Tourism Forum for the uh, outstanding project that helping the community. And then from the Myanmar Institute of Responsible Tourism, and then another from uh, Travel Massive Organization from UK. But after 2019, with all these disturbances, unrest, bombings, killings, fightings, that stopped. But the people over there in the village they are very good. They never vandalize our, 
our property. Still there, they look after it. And fortunately, we are still able to pay them their salary. After Is now, that two, right? Two years already. We had a good revenue amount. We had to save, we had to save up a lot. We're still able to give them their salaries for them. That's very good and, to uh, hear. We have a destination center where outreach programs are held. We invited the, uh, what you call, we, have, we hold uh, seminars for natural science students from the universities, from the uh, European University, from the EU countries. And we have also uh, accommodations for overnight stays. That's what we are doing now. So, Harry, I know you emigrated to Australia in 2009, and the Australian part is, of course, less relevant for us. But I wondered whether you could go back to your childhood and talk about how unstable things were in 1948 and the experience you had outside your home when you were a very young boy. Yeah. Well, after 1948, the country, as you know, uh, civil war erupted. And the insurgents even approached after insane. Insane is just about 10 miles from the Yangon CBD. The country was very unstable. The quietly, robberies, killings, murders, theft. You name it. And especially a lot of these uh, internally displaced persons, the war refugees from the areas where fighting between the government troops and the insurgents were going on. They came to Yango to escape the fighting. At that time, my house was in the western part of Yango, what we call the Chinatown area. And it's all main roads. The Dalhousie Road, the house is now called Mahabandula, the Fraser Road and Canoe Road that is now called Anorata, and the, uh, in the, what called the, what called Aung Road. These three main thoroughfares that run from the west, from east to west through Yango. Everybody was pitching up this pastures, thatch roof, huts, on the pavement, on the pedestrian walkways. Crowded, dirty, families living there. All sorts of, I mean, people, bad people, good people, selling everything, food, small goods. You can walk under these roofs without needing an umbrella. That's how thickly crowded they were. And then also the railways. There were frequent bombings, mines, all these railway bridges, mines. I cannot remember exactly the year, but one very, very ugly incident happened when the train coming down from Mandalay was mined near Yamlipinu, somewhere like somewhere there, near the Jumas, from the near the Bagul, Bagul Ranges by an ethnic insurgents and a group of young university students, young female university students, 
going back for the studies in the old university, were kidnapped, taken to the border, and exchanged for arms and ammunition from the Kuomintang troops. Are very ugly. But uh, finally, also on the roots, also on the roots. There were frequent robberies. There and what about the ex- what about the experience that you personally had? Situation was very bad. Most of the residential areas, what we had to hire private security guard. Our my dad, my dad was one of the elders of our work. We had a Gurkha, Gurkha Nepali, Gurkha guard who works as a night guard in our area. It was a big one with this with this crooked knife. I was very afraid of him. He comes, he comes around in the evening and go to my dad and with a big, long, what you call wooden staff, he goes around that area and bang, bang, you know. And every hour he strikes on this unused, what you call iron rim, wheel iron. He strikes every hour on the hour and shout, everything's okay. And I was very afraid of it. When he came to report to my dad that he's uh, of his presence, every evening I would run up up there. Because I was told that his, what you call it, what, what you call a kukri? is this uh, crooked blade he has in his belt. You cannot put it back into the scabbard without having a bit of blood on it. So one time there was a robbery somewhere, somewhere, I do not know. So to give you an idea of our street, there's a numbered street, numbered street, with numbers on the, on the streets. And then we have the uh, houses facing the street. And at the back of the houses is a back drainage space. There are all these sewage, manholes and everything. And the used water and what you call our collected. So there was a robbery somewhere, and people were some a, a person was running in front, and a mob was running after him, shouting, "Thief! Thief! Thief!" You know, somebody catch him. My mother took me immediately upstairs, locked me in. She doesn't know what is what is happening. She's afraid that I might get hurt. So my dad. Our house was at the corner of this back drainage space and the road in the street. So as the, uh, the so-called robber came near him, he kind of, I think he stalked him or something like that. Anyhow, the robber was flat on the uh, ground. Knocked him out. <laughs> knocked out. Knocked out. So my dad had to uh, cover him from above, otherwise the mob would have killed him, you know. And for his courageous and heroic action, he was awarded a revolver and a certificate from the commissioner of Yangon police. <laughs> and this revolver, as far as I know, he just shoots it once, only three shots. And it was at a funeral of a monk. 
family monk, a monk from a family monastery when he died. And to commemorate his funeral, he shot three shells. He shot three shots. That's the only time, only time he, he used that uh, revolver. Anyhow, when he died, I started it back to the police. It's dangerous at home. I do not know how to use it. No. I have a I have small boy at home, so it's dangerous. And another instant was that uh, about three or four houses distant from us. There used to live two sisters, both spinsters. They were they live alone in a small hut, small house, brick house. But because at that time everybody knows everybody, they were very safe. But one time, there was a robbery. Nobody knew anything about this robbery happening. Only when this uh, older sister came rolling out into the street, rolled up in a mosquito net, people knew that they had been robbed. And that were very bad times, very bad times. So, Harry, thank you so much for participating in this interview. You've had a fascinating life and there are so many stories there. And I do look forward to catching up with you in Sydney sometime. And if there are any other topics that you'd like to uh, to talk about, please do let me know. Thank you very much, Harry. Okay, thank you, Peter. Thank you for the opportunity.